coming up on Philosophy Talk. We think that is a fair and a wise guy for rule to be guided by. What is reality? And we're not afraid of it, are we? Eat it! You bet. Reality has meaning. Reality is meaningless. Emerging levels of reality. The real, the unreal, and the surreal. My reality has meaning. I don't know about yours. Our guest is Tim O'Connor, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. Levels of reality. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, levels of reality. Ken, if you think about it, reality comes in many different levels, each level involving different kinds of things, having different kinds of properties. Some really small, some really big. You know, I imagine that a lot of people, if they start to think about this, they start thinking about dirt as at the bottom level and things like us, you and me, human beings in the middle level, and at the next level, at the highest level, the sky, because it's really big. Well, philosophers have developed a somewhat more sophisticated way of thinking about it, a bit more abstract. Here are some examples of levels of reality. First, you and I, or at least our bodies along with tables and chairs and cities and towns and even planets. These are all what philosophers call the level of medium-sized objects. This is the level of reality that we live in. It's what most of our lives are concerned with. It's the sorts of things we can perceive with our senses and talk about and so forth and so on. Now contrast with that quantum reality. Objects like quarks that we can't see, having properties like spin that most of us don't begin to understand. Yeah, and, and there seem to be more levels in between the middle-sized dry goods that you talked about and the, and the quantum level. There's a level just above quantum physics. That's where we find electrons and atoms. Then there's a level of chemical facts where you find, like, molecules. And then above that, the level of biology where you find cells. And higher levels, too, involving minds and even societies, nations. And if you get really, there, there's angels and gods and numbers for that matter. So we've got lots of levels, lots and lots of levels. And, and at each level, philosophers ask, is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Can it be greater than the sum of its parts? Intuitively, each level has a characteristic kind of object with characteristic kinds of properties. And indeed, a characteristic profession for people who study it, from physicists at the bottom. All the way at the top, you have mathematicians and theologians, for well, example. Yeah, except right, even beyond them, according to Aristotle, at the very, very top, philosophers. He puts philosophers there because we think about being, that's being with a capital B, that is the whole shebang, and we try to figure out how the different levels are related. You know, personally, I don't feel, I feel very much in the middle of things rather than on top of it all. But, you know, I do want to think about how the different levels are related. I, I'm drawn to reductionism. 
Well, tell me and everyone else what you mean by that, Ken. Well, first of all, let's set God and angels aside. I'm not sure I believe in them, and I wouldn't know what to say about them if I did anyway. And then there are numbers. I also don't know what to say about those. But all the other levels that we've mentioned seem to me really to be just one big reality, one big physical reality. Facts about chemicals really are just facts about atoms and electrons. And facts about atoms and electrons are just really facts about subatomic particles. And so on for all the other higher levels, they seem to me to just reduce to something lower level and ultimately down to physics. The divisions that we perceive are based on how humans interact with the different phenomena, the tools we use, the interests we have, the budgets we, we approve. Ultimately, metaphysically, philosophically, there's just one reality, matter in motion. You've made your view very clear, Ken. Clear, depressing, and mysterious. Me, I, I don't feel like a complex of quarks or atoms, like I'm just matter in motion. Luckily, there's another theory. It's a competitor to reductionism, and it's called emergence. That's the idea that at each, each level, in some way, new objects emerge from the ones below, at least under favorable conditions. And when emergence happens, we have truly new kinds of objects, properties, and facts. Now, now Ken, what makes you think reductionism, rather than a more human-friendly view like emergence, is true? Well, take, just take an example, biology. Biologists have known since Mendel that something which they called genes was responsible for inherited characteristics. But, you know, for a long time, there were debates about whether genes could really be explained by physical and chemical properties, and many biologists thought it could never happen, and they thought that genes were emergence and not reducible. But you know what? With the discovery of DNA and the development of molecular biology, we know that isn't so. The structures that Watson and Crick uh, discovered have allowed scientists to explain how genes work without appealing to anything but the principles and properties of physics and chemistry. And I think it's going to work like that eventually for all these supposed emergent properties. And whenever philosophers see emergence, it will just be another idea in the dustbin called the history of philosophy. <laughs> well, so you're you're pretty confident. You think we'll have a biological understanding of consciousness and all the other mental phenomena? Is it so obvious to you that that even makes sense? Well, look, I can't tell you ahead of time just how these reductions will look, but I, I believe it's true. I believe it with a with a firm faith. Well, emergence and reductionism, it's, it's a rich topic. Luckily, we have an expert on all of this to help us think about it. Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. And it's not just us talking philosophy. We'd like you to join us as well. The number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, searches for emergence in a colony of ants. She files this report. At Stanford University, biology professor Deborah Gordon shows me into her lab. Here they are, the little darlings. It's filled with six-foot-long ant farms, and we watch the bugs crawl around test tubes and bits of food. She spends most of her day observing their behavior. In here, you can see the queen, maybe. Does she know that she's the queen, that she's different? No, I don't think she knows anything at all. And they don't know that they're not the queen, either. How they come to be doing what they're doing is the problem that I think about. A group of ants is huddled around a seed, pushing and pulling. They're blind and can't make a collective decision about where to take it. Gordon says this can go on for months. Really what's most impressive to me about ants is the way that individuals can be so inept and bumble around and yet colonies can be so successful. 
Gordon thinks understanding just how ants form a thriving colony without any central command can help us answer questions about how cells interact or neurons fire in our brains. Ants don't accomplish anything through individual talent and intelligence, but instead because of the way that the behavior of ants within the colony is coordinated. Gordon remembers observing an ant colony build a layer of dirt and twigs around a nest to protect it from the rain. Somehow they start doing that without any ant thinking, well, it's raining, we better get going. Hey guys, come over here, it's time to build up the entrance to the nest. So it's hard to imagine how they could do so much without any individual having goals or some sense of what needs to be accomplished, but that's the amazing thing about ants. Uh, it's not as if uh, someone goes out and calls them to come in, uh, because nobody's actually aware of everything that's going on in the colony. Corey Washington is getting his PhD in neurobiology at Columbia. He used to be a philosophy professor, and then one day, he discovered ants. That was pretty much the, the beginning of the end for me in philosophy. Washington realized that ants pose some really big questions about why we value the individual so much in society. We do have, a, I think, a somewhat exaggerated view of what it means to be a free, an individual. We have this picture that individual's free and is operating on all this information and has these beliefs and desires that allow the individual to, to do uh, these independent things. And the individual is clearly much more influenced by their surroundings than most people would like to admit. And so I think the more we see it, you know, it's not only that you get intelligence emerging outside of the actual individuals, but each of the individuals is in turn influenced by the group that they're part of in ways that the individual is not at all aware of. So in a way, the individual person is like an ant colony. What separates people from ants, says Deborah Gordon, is that we think we know what we're doing. Well, one really important difference between ants and people is that people always have some idea about what they're doing and why. Even if they're wrong, that idea is really important. Whereas ants seem to move around their world and do what they need to do without any sense of why they're doing it. And yet they manage to do really well. You could even say that in some ways they're doing better than we are. Once again, Corey Washington. We have a picture of ourselves as a unified intelligence, but really we're not. We are a bunch of different, our brain is a, consists of a bunch of different areas uh, that may work together as modules. And the idea that there's a unified intelligence coming out is itself kind of an illusion. It's almost an intuitive picture that we have ourselves that we impose in the world. And that picture really isn't true of ourselves or, or probably much of anything else. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.